worship guide with you, if you would open it up to the section on the announcements. This is kind of an odd way to start, but um, if you'll open it up to the middle, there's a little section for announcements. At the bottom of the announcements, you'll see we printed the Nicene Creed. Uh, For those of you that are guests with us this morning, we started a series a few weeks ago working through the Nicene Creed, and we're calling the series The Real God for the Real World. Uh, And this morning, we're going to be closing down that first section on God the Father, looking at the last proposition in that first section on God the Father. And what I want us to do this morning is to read just the first two lines together um, as a church body. And then we'll begin to work our way through it. So if you've got your guides with you, we're just going to read these first two lines underneath the Nicene Creed. So, you ready? I feel like I need a conductor's wand. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Now, as Christians, when we profess that as a church, when we profess that as a community, We are professing a profound belief that is connected for centuries, for centuries. We have roots going back into the ancient church, the time of this creed and even before, and we're professing a a belief that that has stood the test of time. But here's the problem. We've talked about this over the last few weeks. A lot of people, and I think rightly so, really don't think we believe what it is we say. That we can profess well with our mouths certain beliefs, but our lives fail to embody the very things that we profess. That we say one thing, but it doesn't really look like it makes any difference in, in how we live. And let me just give you a couple of examples. Charles Minor was a scientist, and in a work that he was writing, he, he was talking briefly about Albert Einstein. And he had this to say about Einstein. He said, the design of the universe is a very magnificent thing and it shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe, that is why Einstein had very little use for organized religion. Although he strikes me as a very religious man, he must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt like they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt the religions that he'd run across did not have a proper respect, or dare I say, a proper awe for the author of the universe. And Donald McCullough was a pastor. He wrote a book back in 1995 called The Trivialization of God. I want you to hear how he actually started his book. This is page one. He said, visit a church on Sunday morning, almost any church will do, and you'll likely find a congregation comfortably comfortably relating to a deity who fits nicely within precise doctrinal positions or who lends almighty support to social crusades or who conforms to individual spiritual experiences. But you will not likely find much awe or sense of majesty. The only sweaty palms will be those of the preacher unsure of whether or not the sermon will go over. The only shaking knees will be those of the soloist about to sing the offertory. But as far as reverence and awe, they've been replaced by a yawn of familiarity. When the true story gets told, whether in the partial light of historical perspective or in the perfect light of eternity, it may well be revealed that the worst sin of the church at the end of the 20th century has been the trivialization of God. 
he goes on to quote Annie Dillard, a writer, and she said this. She said, why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? On a whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one really believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. So I have to ask, have we trivialized God? Is there a greater error that we can make in our lives? Have we lost a rightful sense of awe and majesty before the Almighty? Have we been seduced to actually believe that the temporal is the most valuable? I mean, if we're honest, and and if you're honest, and I know that church is often the most difficult place to actually be honest with yourself and with others. So in your heart, if you're honest, are you more preoccupied day in and day out with what you can get your hands around, with what you can acquire, or with how you can maintain all that you have acquired? More preoccupied day in and day out with the temporal than with the eternal. And as we think about these questions, what do our answers have to say about what it is we really trust in? What do our answers have to say about who it is that we really trust in? Have we indeed trivialized God? This morning, my, my hope, my prayer, my aim in the time that we've got, and it's such a little time, is to open the word of God and to trust God to take one step forward in recovering this sense of awe, this sense of majesty that is so easily put aside. And to do that, we're going to turn no further than Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Genesis 1, verse 1. And I'm going to pray for us because we're going to need the very Spirit of God to do what only He can do through His Word, to work this rightful sense of awe and majesty in our hearts. I want us to look and to see by God's grace how this verse can help restore a right understanding of the one true God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen or unseen. Let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together this morning as your people, and I would ask that you would do the work that only you can do this morning by taking very human words of mine and by your spirit using them to transform hearts, to help us posture our hearts in a place of surrender to your word. Father, help us to sense for the first time or the first time in a very long time a right understanding of who you are that might correspond with a right response of reverence and awe of humility, of worship, and of ultimately joy. We ask this, Lord, that your name be made much of in all of this. 
Amen. Genesis 1, verse 1, goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse 1, we already can hear echoes of things that we've talked about in weeks past when we started looking at this creed. And as we go through this verse, I I want you to to listen carefully for things that we may have touched on. And in fact, I'm going to purposefully try to tie some things that we've talked about in the creed earlier into this verse so that you can see how all of this is unpacking this portrait of, of who God is in particular. But first of all, I want you to see that the subject of this sentence, just the subject of this very first sentence in the Bible, is the subject of the scriptures itself. God, the subject of Genesis 1-1, is the subject of the Bible. And when we open up our Bibles and we look at Genesis 1-1, we are being invited to focus on God. And so this morning, I want us to see what does this verse tell us about who God is and the world that we actually live in. It's one verse, it's three propositions, and my prayer is that we would get a glimpse of the reality of the character and the majesty of God. So we're going to start with the first one. In the beginning. Now, let me ask you. Have you ever thought about how astounding it is that the scriptures start with these words? I mean, for those of us who are so familiar with the Bible, who grew up with the Bible, who might have multiple copies of the Bible, who claim to have actually read the Bible... Have you ever actually thought about how astounding God's revelation to us in his word is that it starts with these words, in the beginning? What's the beginning? I mean, really, what what, what is the beginning? What's the beginning like? I mean, why did the beginning actually begin? Have you ever just thought about that, just stopped the first verse? In 1997, there was a movie that was made called Contact. Um, I don't know that any of you saw it. It might have predated a number of you. Uh, it wasn't really a great movie, but I had to watch it in college. And it was a movie about an astronomer who ended up with the capability of communicating with aliens. She was actually able to decipher a transmission from alien life. And this message that she was able to decipher uh, instructed her to build a machine. The problem was she didn't know what was going to happen with this machine. Uh, What was this machine going to do? What was going to happen when they got in this thing? Well, if if you've seen it, you know that when they get in the machine, it transports them back to the beginning. And and the way the movie depicts the beginning, it was the most unmajestic thing I think I've ever seen. But they get into the machine and they go back to the beginning. And here is her response, standing at the beginning of all things. They should have sent a poet. That was it. They should have sent a poet. Now, not to be funny deliberately, but all she would have really had to do was pick up the Bible. I mean, Genesis 1-1 is pretty clear. She could have picked up the Bible and seen that in the beginning, God just proclaimed. He was already there. In the beginning, he was already there. And he just proclaimed. He gives no reason for why he was there. There is no sound, logical argument in Genesis 1-1 for why God was there in the beginning. He just is. And he just proclaimed. So what are a few things that we can learn about him from this first proposition in the beginning? Well, first is that he's eternal. God is eternal. 
God stood on the other side of start. I mean, as far back as you can conceive, he's even further back. As far back as your finite mind can go, he's even further back. He stood on the other side of however far you can get back to to start. Listen to how the psalmist said it, Psalm 90, verse 2. He said, before the mountains were brought forth, or you ever had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He always is and always has been. And so when you and I are born, we're born with a finite number of days, a finite number of breaths that we can take. And from the minute that we're born and we take that first breath, that clock begins to wind down. But life is not a gift that was given to God. God is eternal. He has life within himself. As far back as you can go to think about the start, he was on the other side of it. Because he's eternal. God is also self-sufficient. He's complete in himself. God lacks nothing. He does not depend on any part of his creation for his life or to be whole. He does not depend on any part of his creation for anything in the way that you and I depend on something as simple as the sun just to be warm. Or would depend upon the sun for just the simple things that the sun does in producing life through photosynthesis. And all the ways that we depend upon one thing in particular, the sun, God depends on nothing that he has created for any sense of fulfillment or completion. He is self-sufficient. Think about this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Since he is eternal and self-sufficient, he's not created. Have you ever just thought about that? He, he's not created. He's eternal. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the one true God and we talked about the historic nature of the Trinity, we've talked from there for weeks about how God has always existed as he always has in the fulfilled and complete relationships of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a perfect, self-satisfying love and unity. He doesn't need his creation to be complete. He doesn't need his creation to be relational. All that God is and all that God does is in complete satisfaction with himself. He is completely free. Now, we've talked about that. We spent weeks talking about that. Just think about it in relation to creation. I, one of the two things I've been most staggered by this week in, in thinking about this is that God is eternal. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything to be fulfilled why did he create then? I mean, have you ever just thought about God in relation to the very fact that you're here? The very fact that everything else that exists actually is? He wasn't lacking anything. He didn't need anything. Yet, he chose to actually create. Creation was his free, independent choice. Because of his self-sufficiency and his might, he can't be forced to do anything against his will. He chose freely in himself to express himself in creation. He is eternal. He is self-sufficient. 
And because he is eternal and self-sufficient, God needs no worshipers, he needs no helpers, and he needs no defenders. Tabidi Anyabwile, a pastor down at First Baptist in Grand Cayman Island, he said this about God's character. He said, though we owe him our worship, our worship adds nothing to him. Though we serve him with all that we are, his plans are not stopped or established based on our service. And though we honor and defend his name, he alone will vindicate himself as God in the end. He is the only one capable of being pleased by the worship of himself. He alone has all perfections. And it's our delight to love him because of it. Because he is eternal and self-sufficient. God is ultimately inescapable. He will not die. He will not go away. He will never cease to exist. And the reality of that is, if we ignore him now, we will be faced with him in the life to come. If we reject him now, we will face the one that we have rejected. And we will suffer his eternal rejection of us for eternity. And so it would be wise and it would be best if we were to know him for who he is now. God is eternal and self-sufficient and he is ultimately inescapable. What does the second proposition tell us about God? In the beginning, God created. Now we actually get to the apex of the verse. Now we're actually getting to the crescendo of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. What can we learn of God and the world that we live in from this proposition? Well, the first thing I want to tie back to what we've been talking about just so you can see how all of this fits together. The first thing that we learn about God in this one proposition is that creation in and of itself is Trinitarian. I mean, we've been talking for weeks about the triune God who has existed from all eternity. And we've talked about how he freely and purposefully chose to create. The Father is the creator, but he created all things through the Son, and all things receive life through the Spirit. That's the witness of Scripture. Creation is Trinitarian because it was created by God. Colossians 1.16, we read it this morning in our responsive reading. By him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's, Paul's referencing that fact that creation comes through the sun. And Job 33, 4, one of many places you can go, is talking about how life is given to the Spirit. It says, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. It's not only the witness of Scripture, it's the witness of the creed that we're working our way through. We talked last week about how as we begin to work through the creed, we'll see that it's broken up by, through the Trinity, by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, when we get to the section on the Son, it will say this, that through Him all things were made. And when we get to the section on the Holy Spirit, it'll say that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. So creation, as we see in this one little section that God made, we see that creation is ultimately a Trinitarian expression because it was created by the triune God. Something else that we can see in this one little proposition that's closely closely related to what we've talked about in the past couple of weeks is that God is sovereign in his creation. God has been before anything that is ever was created. He has been for all of eternity and he has been without dependence. Nothing 
nothing coerced God to create. He did it as an expression of his own will. Creation is ultimately an expression of God's sovereignty. And as such, he rightly rules. He rightly reigns over all things that he has created. And he does what he pleases. And what he pleases to do is good and right. Because that's who he is. Creation is ultimately an expression of the sovereignty of God. And what we talked about last week with the might of God. This one little proposition shows us again clearly that God is almighty. Or God is omnipotent. And this is what staggered me the most this week. I mean, things that can be so familiar sometimes. This is what staggered me the most. Have you ever just stopped to think about the might of God, the majesty of God displayed in creation in that he has existed from all time. He is eternal. And he simply spoke. And all that didn't exist obeyed him. Have you, I mean, have you ever thought about that? God has existed for all of eternity. And with words, what did not exist actually obeyed him. He spoke and things appeared. Things that were not came into being. The sun, the moon, the stars, turtles, mankind. I mean, I, the, the, I mean, I, the, the, the created order is, is staggering, but it didn't exist. And with words, with words, the nothing was populated with something. What didn't exist actually obeyed him. Have you ever stopped to consider the power? Have you ever stopped to consider the power? Who or what can be compared to God? Who or what can rightly be compared to God? Until he spoke, nothing existed. Listen to what the psalmist said, Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth, all of their host. He gathers the waters and the sea as a heap, and he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? Verse 9. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Have you ever considered the majesty of God and the fact that he simply spoke and everything came into being? I mean, just think about this. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it here to get in a minute, but it just gets in my mind. I just can't fathom it. You put your hand in front of your face and cover your eyes and the majority of you see darkness. Some of you might see some spots popping around based on your eyes. You see darkness. He created darkness. Like, he created darkness. That was part of creation. Nothing existed apart from God and he simply spoke. And it all came into being. And one of the things I've wrestled with as I've 
prayed about this and I've prayed for us as a, as a people is that along with this confession and this proclamation that we make about who God is, in particular as we're going through this creed, we, we also confess to believe that, that the scriptures are the very word of God. That the God-breathed words of how God has revealed himself to us. And I have to think if we were to fathom and even think about for a moment the power and the majesty of God in speaking his word and bringing what doesn't exist into existence, I'd have to think, how, how would that begin to impact the way that we either as individuals or corporately approached his word? I mean, maybe the accusations are right. Maybe we confess one thing with our mouth, but our habits and our practices display a completely different trust. I mean, we gather together to celebrate and to make much of this God who's presented himself in his word, and we begin our time together by reading from his word. And I don't know if we actually believed what the scriptures say about who he is, and in particular in his power, would we be so flippant about that? I mean, would we be 15 minutes late every week? I mean, would we carry on all the conversations in the back of the room when the word of God's being read? I was telling the guys in the office this week as we were talking about this. Yeah, I took Jude to a um, baseball game a couple of weeks ago, the playoff game down the squirrels. And we got there a few minutes late. We were running behind, had to get tickets to the will call booth. You know, it's playoffs, thousands of people outside trying to get in. And I'm trying to keep up with him. So I've got my hand on him and we're trying to get our way through the crowd to find the line to get into. And all of a sudden, it's like the world just stopped. Everybody just froze. And I'm talking to Jude, and we're pulling him along, saying, come on, buddy, we got to get a line, and nobody's moving. This old-timer grabs me on the shoulder, and he just gives me a look. And I knew exactly what he was doing. The Star Spangled Banner was on. Thousands of people standing out on boulevards, standing in the grass, walking in line, trying to get to where they're going, to get their seeds, to get this first pitch. Stopped for a song. He simply spoke. Let all the inhabitants of the world that he spoke into existence stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it stood firm. What I love about his power as he's demonstrated in creation is that it wasn't a naked exhibition of power for the sake of power. His creation was meant for us to see and experience and for our hearts to rightly respond and rolling up into praise and to worship him for who he is and what he's done and what's on display in the world that he's created. This is what Paul is telling the church in Rome in Romans 1. He said, for what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his invisible nature, namely, namely, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things which have been made. So they are without excuse. See, we can know God and we can know that he is and we can know that he is powerful and we are without excuse because we can look around 
and we can see the world that he has created, and we can see beyond that creation to him. Creation is meant to be like a portal into the majesty of who God is. So I have to wonder, have we ever really considered him in this way? Have we ever really considered the might? But what else? I'm gonna get lost in one little proposition. What else? What else can we learn about him in this, just this second proposition that he created? Well, the second thing, most importantly, that we can learn is that he is transcendent. He is transcendent, big word. Eastern philosophy, new age mysticism, it all wants you to believe that God is actually part of his creation. That God is actually part of his creation. That he's better known and more commonly referred to as Mother Earth. They want you to believe that he simply is in everything and everything is simply part of him. We're all part of one great reality and that great reality is God. God and the world are one. And in my mind, whenever I read this and think about this, I naturally just wait for the cue for the Coke commercial to come on and the dancing bears to come out and people from around the world to come out and start singing, you know, we're the world and I don't know. That's just me, sorry. That's just my twisted brain. But that idea is as ancient as any. It's more commonly referred to as pantheism, the belief that God is his creation. See, God is not woven like that into the fabric of the world. God isn't woven into the rocks outside or woven into the James River. If you ever fished or swam in the James River, you know that. He's not woven into his creation. He simply spoke and it all came into being. You see, this idea that God is everything and everything is him, this pantheism that's so common and so normal even today causes us to lose sight of God's holiness. And I don't even want to say it causes us to lose sight of God's holiness because the reality of it is in our sin, we willingly push aside God's holiness. But this idea compels us and even tempts us to lose sight of God's holiness, which is built on God's transcendence or his otherness. You see, I think is what the writer was talking about that Einstein experienced and what Donald McCullough was saying is more common in churches today and what Annie Dillard was observing in the life of the American church. I think what's most common for us is to try to make a God that we can manage, that we have become so familiar with him and we can manage him and get him into a place where we can kind of control him that as we do that for our own peace of mind at times, we lose a sense of his otherness, his transcendence, his holiness. And when we do that, we lose the awe. We lose the reverence. We lose the majesty. God said to his people through the prophet Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we make a deadly mistake when we lose sight of this. Psalmist actually pointed this out in Psalm 50. As he was talking about the sins of God's people and the way that they were living and loving and serving one another in God. In verse 21, 
He says this, these things you have done, as he's listed off a litany of things that the people of Israel are guilty of, and I have been silent. Now listen to what he says. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you, and I lay the charge before you. Far too often, I think, we intentionally, many times, try to make God one like ourselves. Try to craft him in an image that is more manageable, more relatable, more at peace with our wants and our desires. And we lose the sight of who he really is. We lose the sight that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He simply spoke. And it all came into being. We are not him. And he is not us. And we need to recover the idea. We need to not only recover the idea, but we need to begin day in and day out to treasure the transcendence of God in our life and in our worship. If we can begin to recover this, if on a day in and day out basis we can begin to treasure more deeply as it is the transcendence of God, his holiness, his otherness, we recover the awe. We recover the, the majesty. We begin to see him rightly for who he really is. This is the God that we gather together to make much of. This is the one we gather together to worship. This is the one we've gathered together to surrender our hearts and our souls to as he speaks through the word that he's given us. If we considered these things more personally and specifically, do you think they would change the way that we approach? What about the third proposition? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The creed will kind of blow that out a little bit and say, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. Heavens and the earth are like bookends, like a catch-all drawer to simply say one thing. Everything that's created is created by God. That's what it means. The heavens and the earth. Everything is created by God. No tricks, no philosophical inquiry there. Everything is created by God. Just here's what that means. There was nothing <laughs> eternal or pre-existing that existed alongside God. Let me just clear it up. There, there was no pre-existing matter that existed alongside God in an undeveloped form. I mean, there was no cell that was somewhere in the nothingness that existed alongside God that was just undeveloped, that right now in 2011 has become a middle linebacker for the Cowboys. There was nothing pre-existing that existed alongside of God. You get that? He created everything. He simply spoke. And then nothingness was created. I mean, when you keep reading in Genesis and you read of his spirit, hovering over the waters. You read of the formlessness in the void. He made that. 
There wasn't formless and void over here and God all the way over here and God looking over and going, formless and void. Let me hover for a minute and let's see what happens. Everything was created by him. The writer of Hebrews will say that by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. He spoke, he commanded, and what did not exist obeyed him. I don't know if you get that. He spoke and it obeyed so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. There wasn't something else that existed alongside God. And God just took it and made whatever it is we see. No, God spoke. And all things came into creation, came into being. So all of creation has a beginning. Time has a beginning. Time has a beginning. Creation, it actually began to define the beginning. Now I'm not going to go off on this because this is one of those things that you talk about over coffee all the time, right? Creation defined the beginning. Before creation... There was no time because God exists outside of time. God was not just hanging out somewhere, waiting around, twiddling his thumbs, wondering what he was going to do, and then one day decided to create a universe. He exists outside of time. Time has a beginning. Its beginning is defined by creation. Everything was created by God. In the spiritual world. That's what we read in Colossians 1 in our responsive reading. By him all things were created. Things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Which means God is preeminent. He is preeminent. He is the first above all things. God is not locked in some cosmic battle against evil. In ancient times, it was common to believe that there was this eternal battle between good and evil. And every culture had a different name for good and a different name for evil, and a different God for good and a different God for evil. And they all believed in some way, shape, form, or fashion that this cosmic eternal battle produced the world that we actually live in. It was commonly referred to as dualism. But God is not locked into an eternal cosmic battle with evil. No matter what the books on the shelves of whatever Christian bookstore it is you go into tell you, there is no way that you can pray or a particular thing that you can say that can tip the scales on God's eternal battle with evil. He's not dependent upon that to have victory. Do you get this? God is preeminent. There is no battle that he's currently engaged in. He created all things, seen and unseen. And no matter what, no matter what is said, God is no equal party in some eternal combat between good and evil. He is sovereign. He reigns over all that he has created. Even Satan must operate within the overall will of God. And if we had time, we could just read Job 1 through 2.8. He is preeminent. 
He is God and he has no rival. He is the center. He is the focus of all things. Life is about him. It's meant to be oriented towards him. We are said to have loved him with all that we are and serve him with all that we are. Life is meant to be spent making much of him by being deeply satisfied in who he is. And as our souls are cultivated to a greater measure day in and day out to see him rightly and enjoy him rightly for who he is, he is seen for who he is in our lives, that he is preeminent. He is first. But this isn't meant to be some isolated list of attributes and characteristics. I told you when we started the creed that if we're not careful, it can be kind of divulge into an exercise in PowerPoint, bouncing around with points and, and verses. God did not just give us this naked list of attributes for us to remember, for us to learn, for us to process. He's not left us uninformed. We can see all of these things, the fullness of all of these things woven together in a person. And he's not left us alone to figure out who that person is. The fullest revelation of the character of God is his son, Jesus Christ. And the witness of scripture will go on to declare that Jesus is God. He is eternal. He is self-sufficient. He has life in himself and he alone has the power to give eternal life. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. And as we read in Colossians, he is preeminent. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, the transcendent holiness of God, the otherness of God, the majesty of God comes near to us. And God in his transcendence and in his glory is not, as some of you may have been taught, this cosmic watchmaker who just made the earth and made the universe and made the world and made the laws and spun it all into motion and then stepped back to actually see what would happen. It's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. He spoke and all things came into being and he entered into that reality. God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven, of earth, of all that is, seen or unseen, sent his very Son and stepped into this world to reconcile us to himself, to give us life by his Spirit, who now seals us for a promised eternity in the presence of God and empowers us to live the very life that he had originally purposed for us to live here and now. So, I've got to ask as we try to land this plane. What do you think about God? Big question, massive implications. What do you think about Jesus? If you've been here for a few weeks, you probably have wondered or, or maybe you've even asked me. And why are we taking the time to to do this, to go through this creed. We usually go through books of the Bible. Why are we, why are we doing this? Why are we looking at this character and nature of, of who God is in this way? Well, Jesus said in John 17, 3, 
This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So in other words, your eternity is connected to your knowledge of God in Christ. Your eternity turns on what you know, but more importantly, what you believe about who God is. So the nature and the person and work of God, especially as it's seen in Christ, is the most important thing that we can actually dwell upon. And so as we wrap up this morning, if this is new to you, if, if this is a new concept to you, if all this information is first information for you, or maybe you've heard it for a million times, but it's never really registered, just listen for a second. This God who created you in his image, he is your creator. And as your creator, you are duty-bound to worship him. That is what it means. You are bound to worship him and obey him in all things. If you, like me, and everyone else, have not done that. You have sinned against God, and in that sin you have broken your relationship with him. And now you stand in the path of his judgment. As the scriptures will say, this holy God is of pure eyes then that can look upon sin. And this eternal God then has pledged to judge sin and judge it eternally. For that's what an eternal God actually does. So your sins have now placed you in great danger because they are against a holy and eternal God. But, but, you've got to learn to love that word in the Bible. But, God, in his great love and in his mercy, has himself paid the penalty for your sins. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die as a substitute for our sin. And Jesus, when he took upon himself in his body, the full wrath of God in your place for your sin. He exhausted the wrath of God. He took what we deserved so that all who would repent from their sin and turn in faith to acknowledge him and his work on our behalf will be saved. Will be saved from the eternal judgment that we deserved for our sin against God. So, given who God is, given who he has presented himself to be, I would beg you, and I can't even find a better word, I would beg you this morning to turn to him, to turn from your sin and turn to God. I would implore you, if that's even a better word, to turn from your sin and turn to God. The Bible will say that all those who do will be saved from the wrath of God or better yet, rescued. Will be adopted into his family, called his sons and his daughters. And we're told that those who turn to him in faith, repenting of their sin and trusting in who he is and what he has done for us, most specifically in his son Jesus, are made new creations. The old is gone. It is put away as far as the east is from the west. A new heart 
we are given, a new creation we are made. We are not shiny, better versions of our old self. We're absolutely new and freed by God's grace through the power of his spirit from the tyranny of sin and death. And we have the hope. We have the hope of eternity with him. Those who would repent of their sin and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ have this God as their greatest treasure. And we have to look forward to the beholding of him face to face for all of eternity. So from Genesis 1-1, from the beginning to the end, life is not about what we can simply touch, what we can acquire. It's about God. And we will either face him as a judge in eternity or through repentance and faith in Jesus will treasure him as our savior, our father almighty forever. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I don't know who said it, but whoever said it, said it well, trying to talk about your nature and your character is like trying to squeeze an ocean into a raindrop. And I would ask this morning, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would take very human and weak and feeble words of mine and do what only you can do, and you make alive through your Holy Spirit hearts that have been dead to you. That your Holy Spirit would make the news of your son, the news of Jesus, the news of the gospel, the reality of your majesty, you would make that wisdom, you would make that righteousness for us this morning. We ask these things, not that we could make much of ourselves, but we could be humbled by your grace, we could be humbled by your majesty, and we could make much of you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.